Hey, this is Mohal Joshi from Los Angeles, California. I follow Indian foreign policy and defense with a special focus on Asia. You can follow me on Twitter at Mohal Joshi. Hey, this is Kishore Narayan from Bengaluru in India. I am an international relations expert specializing in global security, conflict resolution, and international negotiation. My focus areas include peace building and digital diplomacy. You can find me on Twitter at Veggie Diplomat. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of India Rising Strategic Affairs Conversations with Mohal and Kishore, a show in which we analyze whatever happens around the world and their impact on India. Before we begin with today's episode, we just hope that our friends in Afghanistan are safe during these troubled times. So what we have seen in the recent past, in the past uh, fortnight or so, is the dramatic collapse or dramatic fall of uh, Kabul uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, while it was kind of inevitable that the Taliban would launch an offensive uh, to reclaim control once uh, the NATO-led, uh, US-led NATO forces would uh, leave Afghanistan, uh, it, was, it was kind of unexpected that uh, the fall of Kabul would be so dramatic and so quick. In fact, this pretty much uh, was a bloodless uh, surrender or a bloodless uh, victory for, uh, for uh, uh, Taliban against the Afghan national forces. So uh, one thing that we need to keep in mind is that uh, Taliban already was controlling roughly around 30% territory even before the U.S. had announced a troop pullout. So uh, again, it's kind of a dicey situation because the U.S. controlled very few pockets like the Bagram Airbase, like the uh, Kabul airport, and probably the, the elite uh, corridors in Kabul. But overall, uh, the Afghan national government was still uh, in charge of pretty much the remaining uh, part of the country. And uh, some hinterlands was where Taliban was regrouping and was ensuring that they were preparing for the final offensive. So eventually, now that uh, Taliban are now in control of pretty much the whole country except for uh, a minor a few minor pockets here and there uh, the question that we need to think about or we need answers for is are taliban now smarter than 25 years ago earlier they were ready for bloody battles long drawn out bloody battles this time they seem to have chosen the path of least resistance i mean uh, being out of power seems to have uh, taught them quite a few uh, lessons. Uh, so what they've done is they've kind of tied up with powerful tribal leaders, in, including tribal leaders from uh, the northern areas, uh, which was never under their control uh, between 1996 to 2001. So that way, uh, Taliban ensured that they won't have much resistance during their final offensive or do, during their final uh, attack on uh, the major cities of uh, Afghanistan. So now, while doing so uh, in a spectacular fashion, Taliban now suddenly have access to uh, supplies of firepower, arms, ammunition, supplies, so on and so forth. And even so, that Taliban now pretty much controls the entire Afghan Air Force with almost 11 military bases. So that's the kind of uh, uh, spectacular gains that uh, Taliban have had in the recent uh, fortnight which has stunned the world uh, pretty much. Uh, so yeah, uh, 
Mohal, you want to kind of elaborate on how these things uh, uh, gained attraction and uh -huh. how it all happened? Yeah, so uh, what we have noticed is that the, uh, that the resistance to the Taliban has pretty much melted away. The, I mean, post the end of the NATO mission in December 2014, what we saw that was that uh, uh, that the, um, I mean, the U.S. forces were mostly confined to their bases. So Taliban, as you said, right, that control a large part of their country, and, uh, and as per some reports, they. I mean, they were already have seen the pictures that they control a lot, a lot of the U.S. hardware, which they didn't have access to. I mean, uh, modern military equipment they didn't have access to around like what 20 years ago, since they were last in power. And like as per some estimates, like they also have control up to 80 billion dollars of U.S. Uh, hardware, which I mean could easily fall into now. I mean, I mean Taliban wouldn't want to relinquish control, but some of it could easily fall back into Pakistani hands across the border or even be exported to China for reverse engineering some of the high-end technology. Though, though most of the high-end technology was removed, but is obviously uh, going to, I mean, if you can just remember like 20 years ago, like there were so many Stinger missiles that were left over from the opposition to the Russian invasion of mm -hmm. Afghanistan. That, uh, I mean, it was like funny, I was reading somewhere that they were offering up to like a, a few thousand, I mean, like more than $10,000 for each Stinger recovered because they didn't want after the fall of Afghanistan to for the same Stinger missiles to be used against uh, <laughs> the NATO forces. So, so anyways, uh, yeah, I mean, the resistance uh, was a uh, quick and, uh, I mean, the, the resistance was not much there. I mean, it was a swift uh, victory for the Taliban as they took over large parts of the country. I think in like, probably like under two weeks or something, they swept across the entire- uh, yeah, the, the remaining part of it was like, I think there were estimates ranging all the way from six months to uh, a year a or year. maybe two years. Because I mean, see, last time around, uh, even with no NATO forces around, I mean, no US forces around, it took them in 96, sorry, between 94 to 96, it took them, I think, two years, right, Kishore, uh, mm -hmm. for them to depose Najibullah from power. So this time it has been, uh, I mean, nobody expected this. I think that's why we saw the chaotic scenes in Kabul where a lot of the, especially the Western powers have not been able to evacuate their people. I mean, but it's also a failure of intelligence for sure, especially Definitely. on the US side. That, that I mean, you have to plan for a variety of scenarios. I mean, and you have to give a, a sign of probability. You never just say, okay, this is a scenario and this is going to happen. So a lack of planning has been like very, I mean, I mean it's in shambles, the withdrawal at this point. So uh, hopefully like um, everybody's able to withdraw. Now coming to the the scenes on the ground, obviously they are very heart-wrenching. A lot of people have been stuck. People want to flee and the, the airport has been barricaded and they are not able to get onto flights to escape. I mean, Taliban could be preventing a lot of the Afghanis from leaving. I mean, we don't know the details are hazy due to the fog of, or I mean, not actually a war, but the fog of uncertainty. Uh, the U.S. has also has like apparently like 10,000 people stuck behind uh, the Taliban lines. So I mean, it is like I mean, we'll have to wait and watch to see how it unfolds over the next few days. Hopefully, it doesn't uh, descend into anything uh, more worse than I mean what it is right now. Mm -hmm. So coming on to the optical scene. So what we have seen that Taliban has been. Uh, 
devoid of any bloodshed. I mean, if we just compare this to the last time around when they captured uh, Afghanistan in uh, 1996, if I will, sorry, Kabul in 1996, they took the president, uh, Najibullah, who wasn't able to flee. And I believe like he was tortured and his body was hung from a light post. Right. So, I mean, it was a very bloody uh, end to that part of the civil war in 96. So compared to that, if you contrast the scenes to today, I mean, uh, it's been like pretty, I mean, there have been some reports of people being beaten up or like uh, killed in the hinterlands. But in the Kabul, it's been pretty, I think, because of the because of the glare of the world's media, Taliban is not doing anything at all. The the real test of their image would be like once the, everybody's been evacuated safely and uh, people have left, then what happens then? Because uh, you they could be like just trying to portray a more a better image of themselves just to make sure that they get the international recognition which they need in the coming days. Right. So, I mean, Taliban, as some people have said, they are projecting a more conscious image of the last time. Um, I mean, it could be like they have been either been coached, I mean, which is kind of hard to see, like knowing the history of Taliban, or they've been told to go, do good PR to, lean, to gain more legitimacy. I mean, somebody even remarked that many of their leaders have stayed in exile outside the Afghanistan, like, you know, where they had more exposure to the world view, like staying in, let's say, places like Pakistan or Qatar. And I think they have been maybe the ISI handlers or someone has told them, like, you know, not to do anything for now. Uh, I mean, many commentators have been saying, oh, this is Taliban 2.0, which is different from 1.0. But I would reserve my judgment until, like, a larger amount of time has passed on, you know. Right, so. right, right. So, uh, I mean, in... Uh, the other part is like that in many areas, uh, I mean, one of the things is like, why did the uh, the resistance melt away so quickly? So the, some uh, theories have been put forward and some of them do make sense that in many areas, the Afghan forces like were uh, riddled with corruption and also uh, human rights violations. And uh, the US forces or the foreign forces were seen as protectors of the Afghan security forces. So the people had no love lost for the Afghan security forces. So many people were, uh, I mean, the people might say, oh, the Taliban is a more brutal regime and dictatorial regime. Like, why would they support it? But that could be one of the reasons that uh, this, I think that this was an issue right from 2001 that uh, there were always complaints against the Karzai government and the Ghani government that they couldn't control the the corruption. Uh, and this was like a big dichotomy like where the Afghanis would always blame the 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 issues in Afghanistan like you know because the their the militant benefactors stayed in across the border in Pakistan while the US folks would always say no it's not they're just making an excuse for not running the government well and a lot of the corruption and the uh, the abuses I mean a lot of the money being uh, filled in the coffers of some of the corrupt officials. Obviously, all of them were not corrupt. There were many honest, upstanding uh, officials working for the betterment of Afghanistan. I mean, if you think Afghanistan, I think if I look at the numbers correctly, the GDP has doubled in the last 20 years, which is quite, quite a remarkable achievement. Mm. But I mean, those bad apples did uh, create a negative image of the government. There was not a lot of trust in the government. Plus, there is always that... Uh, the tribalism that exists in Afghanistan since ages where various factions, I mean, also the various warlords, I mean, they are, a, I mean, as we call them in India, like the Bahubalis in certain areas, they would 
it i mean they would not be very endear to many of the people so people might just want a change in the regime and might even favor a, a taliban regime which is like more brutal and more oppressive but at least it frees them from the corruption and the abuses that they have they have seen also i mean the overall general uh, uh, administrative inefficiency that was seen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh, whatever work need, needed to be done by the government need, by the administration mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. everything used to happen at its own uh, sweet uh, space and that is mm-hmm. kind of uh, angered the people even more yeah i mean see the thing is like many of these remote areas like if the government doesn't take as you say swift action it just creates more anger towards the the government and it, people lose confidence in the government i mean someone might say like hey if like person x can't deliver better than person y then why not just go back to person y i mean also like taliban which is sort of instant justice kind of system which i'm not endorsing by any way shape or form like they would deliver justice okay if person x has been wrong by person y i mean a person a by b then they would just deliver instances which might be brutal and like not the right way i mean sort the right way to deliver justice but people are like instantly like they could get uh, justice in the uh, and also like the corruption obviously there used to be even the taliban had like ex- money extortion and stuff but they just saw like a better life under taliban which might be paradoxical in the th- world view of many people but they just saw that it it might not be the worst thing i mean if i said it would be just like choosing the world the better of the two evils at this point yeah, yeah. so i think that's why this is one point i think is not being discussed enough like people like didn't have high regard for the current government so that's why. i mean and also if you remember like in 20 years apart we have seen that two coalitions have swept to power in within matter of weeks right in 2001 the taliban simply melted away and in the uh, 2021 20 years later the opposite has happened the op- the taliban swept and the other so i think many of the warlords are also uh not very keen on f- fighting per se i mean they say which way the wind is blowing and they would like to go sit with the uh the majority faction uh i mean they i don't i'm not saying they're like a weather veins but like they see where the the gains are to be had and they would simply switch sides rather than stay and fight a brutal civil war I mean, they have been anyways fighting for over 40 years a brutal civil war so okay if side x is winning i'll just go with side x and not like bother to be in the way of the resistance you know so i mean alliances can shift very quickly i mean you just look at like hikmatyar like i mean i don't know how many times he has switched sides in the <laughs> in the uh, uh, last 40 years so yeah i mean it's not surprising like maybe there might be like people like the panjiris like the amruna saleh and uh, uh, masood like you know who yeah who might always be on one side but many uh, folks and i think that's why i think karzai was dropped air dropped into afghanistan 2001 to negotiate with the pashto tribes that they wanted him to uh, negotiate so that uh, and i think he was able to convince a lot of them to come over sooner rather than later and just reduce the duration of the war 20 years ago mm. uh, also the other thing to remember is mm-hmm. uh, taliban was anyway in control of 25 30 35% of the territory 
and mm-hmm. uh, Taliban used to tom tom about how they are trying to bring in social justice and also administrative efficiency in in their uh, pockets of influence. So that also mm-hmm. would have uh, kind of act, acted in their favor, especially uh, for the people mm-hmm. uh, who were under the national government's uh, mm-hmm. uh, regime. So obviously they would have thought, well, Taliban isn't that bad after all. And mm-hmm. as you said, uh, they are the lesser among the two yeah. evils, yeah. which is kind of, uh, again, uh, sad to see that uh, Taliban yeah. trumping yeah. the national mm-hmm. government in mm-hmm. this regard. Yeah. So, Kishore, I think we talked uh, briefly with all the various actors in this uh, Afghanistan uh, tussle. Hmm. So, you want to like elaborate on the power struggles within Afghanistan? Yeah, I think it's important that we realize that uh, Afghanistan, like any uh, any country at war, has multiple uh, power uh, centers. So, even now that uh, we have... Uh, uh, even now that we have uh, a decisive victory for the Taliban, uh, we still uh, are not sure that uh, this will things will stay this way. So uh, we need to realize that uh, uh, we need to realize that this uh, the last may not be written about the overall offensive that the Taliban uh, did. So again, things are like uh, remember we had the national, Northern Alliance. Even back then, in uh, 1994 to 96, 97, and uh, they were they were successful in keeping uh, Taliban at bay, and uh, Taliban uh, never got to a position where they could control the northern extreme northern areas. Uh, the Northern Alliance was kind of a loose amalgamation of uh, of Tajik uh, uh, ethnic uh, uh, tribal leaders, and they kind of had ganged up against Taliban and. Uh, they were kind of uh, uh, able to uh, keep them at bay. So now the thing is, now uh, even now, a new avatar of Northern Alliance has taken shape. We have uh, uh, Amrullah Saleh, uh, who happens to be the first vice president of Afghanistan under President Ghani. And also we have Ahmad Masood, uh, whom you spoke about uh, just now. He is the son of the legendary uh, resistance leader, Ahmad Shah Masood. So needs to be seen if these two can continue to put forth more and more uh, resistance uh, to the Taliban while they are uh, holed up in the Panjshir Valley. Now, on the other hand, uh, Taliban might also see this as that uh, niggle that they might want to get rid of completely. Uh, it, uh, Northern Alliance was a sore um, player for them last time around. So they would they would want to ensure that Northern Ireland does not gain any traction in the near future. So, uh, yeah, Amrullah Saleh has anyway openly claimed that we will uh, lead a fight back, we will lead a resistance against uh, Taliban. Needs to be seen how things pan out. But then the interesting uh, factor is what happens from, a nas- from an international dimension, from an international perspective, and how do, how do outside players like, let's say, India or Russia or even the U.S., how do they look at uh, this kind of a northern alliance, or even, for example, uh, uh, President Ashraf Ghani? Now, he what what will happen if he uh, claims himself to be uh, president in exile of the erstwhile national government? And what if he tells that uh, there was never a handover of power, and he is the true leader of uh, Afghanistan still? So again. Uh, uh, Although uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, 
uh, internationally, Ashraf Ghani might not gain much traction. But on the other hand, Northern Alliance uh, might actually uh, get some underhand or off-the-radar kind of uh, assistance. After all, uh, Amrullah Saleh has openly, uh, sorry, Ahmad Masood has openly asked uh, the uh, Americans to supply them arms and ammunition so that they can continue leading their uh, fight back. Now, as part of uh, the Taliban movement itself, we need to understand who are the power players within Taliban. And there itself, we have a power struggle uh, which is kind of looming uh, upon them. So we all know that Mullah Omar was the founder of the Taliban movement. Now, uh, in the recent past, uh, Taliban uh, movement has been spearheaded by Haibatullah Kunshada. He, in all probability, might be the supreme leader of the Taliban in charge of uh, Afghanistan. However, it is to be noted that he has yet to be seen in public anywhere in the past few months at least. Haibatullah uh, Kunshada himself, in fact, Mohal, I just saw one uh, uh, article somewhere today telling that uh, Akunshada himself might be uh, might be uh, diagnosed with COVID. So we we, we have not. Uh, <laughs> I mean, not... if you remember uh, that previous uh, leader, I believe uh, who was like dead in 2013, didn't acknowledge for two more years. Mullah Omar, right? The, Mullah, mm -hmm, yeah, the one. The erstwhile leader of. Uh, Taliban, like, I mean, he was dead and even the UK, US security, uh, I mean, intelligence agencies couldn't pick it up. Though NDS, the security agency of Afghanistan did mention like quite a few times, but like nobody believed it. And I think in 2015, they finally acknowledged that he was dead. So the question is like, is he not well, as you say, or is he like has passed away and they don't want to acknowledge it? Like, I mean, so like a lot of mysteries with Afghanistan yeah, to be solved yeah, in yeah, the coming days. Yeah. Anyway, so Akun Hada himself uh, has uh, three deputies. One of them is Mullah Baradar, who has now traveled from Doha to Kabul. And this is everywhere in the news right now. And uh, the other deputy is Mullah Yaqub, who is the actual son of Mullah Omar. And the third person is Sirajuddin Haqqani, who is also a deputy leader of Taliban. So you have three deputies. And of the three deputies, it is highly probable, everyone thinks, that uh, Mullah Baradar might be the new president of Islamic Emirate of uh, Afghanistan. So again, and I think he's already in Kabul, right? Already, he's already, he's already in Kabul. In yeah, Kabul. exactly. So he has now uh, reached Kabul to uh, start off with uh, talks uh, to establish a new Taliban government. So again, we don't know what is the power equation between the three deputies of Akun Sada. So again, uh, that is something that only time can answer. Um, anyway, the other thing is uh, there was a report that the Afghan economy itself might shrink by up to 20% after the Taliban takeover, which means that uh, Taliban itself might not have uh, deep, deep coffers uh, to uh, access to rebuild the economy or to run the country or anything that they want to do with it. So I think that way, uh, a shrinking economy might also add as a new challenge or a new dimension to the existing challenge for Taliban when they actually start uh, ruling the country. Now, along with all this, it's quite obvious now that uh, the takeover of Afghanistan itself was an easy part for the Taliban, uh, although it ended up becoming as easy as it came out to be. But uh, going forward, a global recognition for themselves winning over all domestic challengers, as we said, Northern Alliance or Ashraf Ghani or whoever, 
and also establishing friendly uh, diplomatic ties with immediate neighbors like Iran, Pakistan, Russia, China. I think these are the next set of major challenges for Taliban. And this is where the umpteen power struggles would uh, uh, kind of uh, loop out in all glory within Afghanistan. Mohan? Yeah, so I think let me expand on the couple of the challenges. So, see, like running a nation is like vastly different from running like guerrilla campaign, which they've been doing for the past two decades. Yeah. Now, with international sanctions probably coming, I mean, I mean the, the Western powers won't do until all the citizens are out. So, don't expect anything else till like probably end of August or early September. I mean, as per estimates, the budget was somewhere between five to six billion just to run the country, even with all these inefficiencies that we just highlighted. So, now, I mean, Taliban used to get its money by drug running and extortion. I mean, but they can't be enough funds to cover the country especially when you want to develop the country at a fast pace to lift the people out of poverty and give them a better life. So the revenue stream, probably with a lot of people running away, a lot of the businesses not willing to invest is going to dry up. So this is going to create more pressure on the debt situation. And I mean, who's going to money? I mean, compared to the 90s when Taliban, I mean, was recognized only by three countries like Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and UAE. Now at that time, like the, I mean, Saudi Arabia and UAE were the, the, pretty much the benefactors, uh, the financial benefactors of uh, Taliban. I'm obviously Pakistan to a certain extent. Now, who will be funding them this time? Or is the million dollar question, the billion dollar question? I would say. I mean, I don't think this time. Kishore, correct me if I'm wrong. Saudi Arabia and UAE have made many lot of vocal statements in their support. Am I right? No, they're not at all. I mean, uh, yeah. Very, so very muted, uh, muted statement. Yeah. So, I mean, if the money is not going to flow from the Gulf countries, maybe Qatar might give them some money because of their uh, sympathies. But uh, if they are struggling, I mean, also, I mean, Saudi Arabia, UAE, let's say they cut off their funds to a large extent, maybe they might give some humanitarian aid here and there. Also, Pakistan, as you know, is struggling econo economically, especially after the FATF sanctions. Correct. So then who is going to give them the money? I mean, how are they going to run the country? I mean, so coming to one of the points, why the resistance melted away? So this is, I think multiple sources have confirmed that <clears throat> many Afghan employees and soldiers were not paid for a very long time. In some cases, as long as six months. So this is one of the many factors. I mean, we did highlight a few factors of people not being happy with the government. But this is also like if people are not paid salaries, they have, there is a high chance that they might just defect to the other side. So the question is, can the Taliban now in power pay those salaries, backdated salaries and going forward? Because if not then these people could might as well switch back again and say like, oh, you know what, like these those people have not paid the salaries, but maybe my life is not any better under the Taliban government, then I might just go back to supporting the, the old uh, government. Though the old government taking over militarily, it seems like not very possible right now. But that, what I mean to say is that the dissatisfaction of not getting paid salaries with the Ghani government, and if it's continued in the Taliban, if they don't have the resources and the funds, I mean, I don't know how, and as you say, like if the 20%, the economy shrinks, then there's no revenue. I mean, it is going to be very hard to pay these pay these people. So there could just be more unrest and more civil war uh, within the government because if some people don't get paid and uh, they could just be totally unhappy and they could pick up arms against, let's say, the Taliban. Yeah. <coughs> in, fact, I, I, in fact, I was uh, listening to a BBC uh, news about uh, 20, 25 days ago when the BBC correspondent was telling that uh, the Afghan National uh, Army soldiers, wherever they were, uh, they didn't have uh, drinking water 
and uh, drinking water had to be airlifted and dropped uh, to mm-hmm. the soldiers. Uh, forget arms, ammunition. They they didn't even have uh, drinking water. <clears throat> How can you expect these soldiers to put up a, a spirited fight against Taliban when their immediate needs themselves are not met? So yeah, I think uh, that's the kind of uh, uh, path that led to this kind of a situation that we are in. And uh, agree that uh, the future is not going to be a bed of roses for the mm-hmm. Taliban. Yep. Yeah. So I think I think we have elaborated on the challenges uh, quite a lab, uh, quite uh, extensively. I think we'll also try to look at uh, it from a global uh, perspective. We'll try to understand how uh, the outside nations are looking at it uh, uh, within. So I think uh, one thing that need, we need to understand is. Uh, in terms of the recognition for the Taliban uh, administration itself, and uh, even even institutions like the United Nations uh, will have to pitch in and will have to uh, come out clear on what their uh, role will be on whether they really want to recognize Taliban or not. So things like uh, the P5 discussions or the Security Council discussions initiated by P5 uh, will all will all come into limelight. And uh, there will be deliberations on whether uh, the terrorist tag uh, that is uh, on the Taliban right now, that whether that needs to be removed at all. I, I read somewhere that the U.S. Uh, never never uh, uh, marked Taliban as terrorists, right? Is that right? They only marked the Al-Qaeda as terrorists, but never uh, Taliban. No, I think they did... Uh, uh... I mean, I have to look it up, but they did uh, sanction them heavily, you know. Okay, okay, okay. In any case, uh, again, but, but I, they 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 might have uh, put a. I mean, I have to look it up. I can't recall it correctly here right now. Okay, okay, no worries. So I think uh, there will be deliberations on uh, removing the terrorist label, and uh, that'll that'll form the crux of the diplomatic back channel talks. But more importantly, the other immediate need will be uh, a global refugee policy for uh, the Afghans who are trying to flee from uh, Afghanistan. United Nations itself has estimated that nearly 400,000 Afghans, or 4 lakh Afghans, have already been forced to flee their homes since the start of the year. So this is actually indicative of uh, internally displaced uh, people as well. And in addition, you'll also have contractors and other Afghans who worked for NATO or US troops or Indian companies or whoever, uh, and they they would want to get out of Afghanistan right now to avoid being targeted by Taliban, although Taliban is claiming that they will not do revenge politics. Uh, so I think people, uh, w- there will be a beeline of people heading out. And uh, that- I think is- even, in, even in Europe, like there's a lot of concern. So after the Syria civil war, there was a stream of refugees uh, which headed to Europe and it, I think it created a lot of domestic turmoil in terms of internal Correct. politics Correct. with a uh, lot of uh, opposition to more uh, uh, refugees flooding the Europe, which created like, I mean, uh, yeah. in fact, fears in fact, of demographic change. Right. In and, fact, that shifted uh, the whole narrative, the political narrative in uh, Europe uh, to more uh, right-wing uh, uh, yeah, pol- yeah. Uh, political so the same, yeah. So the same concern is now that if you have a new stream of refugees flooding Europe, so what will be the, not only the geopolitical implications, but also the domestic implications. So a lot of people are opposed 
I think many are okay with giving uh, refuge to folks who have worked with uh, NATO forces over the past 20 years, like uh, highly educated people or like people who have been working as translators or doctors or engineers, but uh, they are, there's a lot of resistance to uh, giving more, I mean, allowing more refugees to come in, like uh, why illegal immigration? Right. So I think globally that will be the uh, question for which uh, there will be lot of a uh, lot of deliberation and even diplomatic back channel talk. Uh, yeah, so yeah. yeah, Mohal, you want to uh, look at the other players within the region? Yeah. So now, Kishore, let's look at the various uh, angles, like the 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 immediate neighbors, like so. Uh, the Pakistan, uh, Russia, and China. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's start with Pakistan. <clears throat> now, in some circles in Pakistan, there has been a lot of uh, celebration that oh, we have been able to get US out of uh, Afghanistan. I mean. I think it was their former ISA chief Hamid Gul who said in 2014 famously that we were able to, uh, with Pakistan's help, we were able to defeat uh, Russia in Afghanistan in the 70s and I mean the 80s. Mm -hmm. And in this decade, I mean this is like seven years ago from uh, from today, mm -hmm. that oh it will be written in history that uh, oh in like we we were able to displace uh, US from I'm just paraphrasing it badly sorry like we were able to get rid of us from afghanistan with the help of united states so they have been like a duplic uh, there's a lot of duplicity in their cooperation with uh, pakistan i mean so uh, imran khan like i mean i think on the day that kabul fell he said like oh they have been uh, afghanistan has been freed from the shackles of slavery which was like a truly head scratching moment for a head of state to say something as bizarre as this I mean, like, what do you mean, like, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, I mean, they were not, like, there was not slavery, okay, maybe things were not rosy in Afghanistan, but there was no, like, slavery, like, they were, like, subju subjugated under some uh, harsh regime, I mean, there was, there was some amount of uh, freedom and liberty in Afghanistan, anyways, uh, keeping aside the, the mad uh, comments from, the maddening comments from, like, uh, uh, Imran Khan, so, like, a lot, I mean, there must be a lot of cheering within the ISI that they were able to achieve a friendly regime in uh, Kabul. But I mean, what happens to the so-called, uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm using the Pakistani word, the bad Taliban, like the Tariq Taliban Pakistan. Like, I mean, will they join the ranks with Taliban? I mean, and across the border start attacking, attacking the Pakistani establishment itself. I mean, uh, there have been reports that TTP soldiers have been freed from Afghanistan prison. So, hmm. I mean, they could easily be joining the fight inside Pakistan. It could, there's a potential to create a lot of chaos inside Pakistan. I mean, there's also this uh, video that's been floating on social media that the videos of the Taliban at the Angurada check post between South Wazaristan in Khyber Pakhtunwa and I think it's the uh, Paktika province in Afghanistan. Sorry, I might have butchered the name. They were like uh, taunting the Pakistani soldiers, like, I mean, you know, at the border, like the Afghanis said, oh, you are, we are coming for you next. I mean, which is kind of scary. I mean, if you think <laughs> of the Pakistanis, because uh, this is immediately going to spill over. So, I mean, the celebrations could be happening in Pakistan, but they have to be also cognizant of the fact that this is going to blow over back into Pakistan. To what extent? I mean, nobody knows at this. I mean, after all, like Hillary Clinton, I think a decade ago, famously said that, you can't keep snakes in your background uh, and expect them to only bite your neighbors. Eventually, those all those snakes are going to turn on whoever is like you know keeping them. You know, 
So, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, the Pakistani forces might seem that okay, we have achieved that fabled strategic depth. I mean, that was like a crazy term to think. I mean, they just didn't want to be encircled. I think that was a better term, but. They have achieved their fabled strategic depth with installing a pro-Pakistan regime in Kabul. But what happens next? I mean, will they create in mischief in India? Obviously, I mean, they could be now saying, oh, one of our sites is secured. I mean, assuming TTP doesn't do a lot of uh, damage, mm-hmm. we will go and, you know, create a mess with India. I mean, I mean, Pakistan has been known to create mischief from time to time. I mean, the LOC has been quiet, so now it could uh, warm up, yeah. obviously. Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. yeah. So, Kishore, you want to cover the Russian angle now? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so, that's about uh, the way Pakistan looks at things. Now, in terms of uh, Russia, uh, they, uh, again, like everybody else, were keenly watching the situation. And they are kind of open to uh, establishing uh, friendship with uh, Taliban to begin with and slowly probably have uh, formal ties. However, this led to quite a bit of, uh, uh, this led to raised eyebrows. And hold on, why is Russia so uh, falling head over heels, uh, uh, trying to establish ties with uh, Taliban? And I saw uh, an article where the Russian envoy to India clarified that Russia's hurried attempt to establish ties with the Taliban, uh, he justified saying that he is not uh, he, he said that the Taliban should not be judged uh, uh, not only on their commitments, but rather on their real actions to ensure law and order, fundamental freedoms, and human rights in their country. So I think people are not, uh, countries are not against Taliban per se right now. They understand that Taliban is the far more powerful and uh, the more uh, established player within Afghanistan, and they don't mind uh, dealing with uh, Taliban right now. But I think these countries do understand that Taliban itself cannot be trusted right away, and uh, they would want to take it slowly, try to understand and see how Taliban will uh, stand up to their claims of uh, become uh, of having become a moderate uh, power. So I think uh, uh, that was uh, an interesting statement by the Russian ambassador to India. But we also need to understand that the last time Taliban was in power, there was some follower of terrorism to the neighboring uh, CIS republics like Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And this time around, all these uh, republics will be very, very keen to avoid uh, such a repeat of events. So even Russia, for that matter, will be watching this carefully and ensure that uh, Taliban continues to behave rather than uh, wag its tail. Mohan? Yeah, I think the threat would not be from, I guess, somebody like uh, a Taliban itself, but like uh, other groups uh, operating within, I think this is the presence of Islamic State within... Uh, IS in Khorasan, yeah. Yeah, in uh, <clears throat> uh, Afghanistan, I mean. So there could be like some spillover from those groups potentially. I mean, they already have, I mean, the Chechen... Uh, trouble has been pretty much mitigated in Russia for the time being, but they don't want any new... Uh, uh, let's say strain of uh, terrorism emanating from Afghanistan which creates trouble in Chechnya or even in the neighboring uh, CIS republics like Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so now you want to switch over to uh, China? Yeah, so the other uh, player in the name, major player in the neighborhood is China. I mean, China does have a small contiguous border with uh, 
uh, with Xinjiang, I mean, of Xinjiang with uh, the Wakhan corridor of Afghanistan. So they have a contiguous land border with uh, Afghanistan. So they have some concern. Like, I mean, China basically has been uh, warming up to Taliban over the last few years. So because yes, uh, I would select three principal aims in addition to the one aim of getting US out of the region and establishing its uh, uh, influence in the region, as we say, like, you know, because it might consider like all of Asia as its own backyard and would want US out of it. So anyways, the, the three principal aims of China are basically no support from Afghanistan of any group, uh, including the ETIM, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, to the uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang, who are resisting Chinese dominance. So they have in, had issues of uh, terrorism and uh, insurgency in uh, Xinjiang, so they don't want any support coming over the border. The other is the access to the, uh, the rare earths, uh, Bonanza, which is inside Afghanistan, which have been, as per some reports, valued as a, up to as high as one trillion. Though I don't think anybody has successfully mined them, so this is a question to be answered later on. And also expanding the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, to expand connectivity towards uh, through Afghanistan to Central Asia. I mean, they could connect towards, uh, let's say, Iran, and then uh, on and forward to other nations in the Middle East. So these are the three Chinese uh, principal aims. I mean, China has already announced that they are having open to having friendly relations with the Taliban. I think last month uh, in July, uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Yang Wei uh, met with uh, the Taliban delegation. He hosted a Taliban delegation. Hmm, yeah. um, and I think like they made some uh, statements that they're open to having good relations. And uh, I think they they sort of got an implicit uh, agreement with the Taliban that they won't use their allow their lands to be used for uh, creating trouble in Xinjiang. Xinjiang, yeah. yeah, yeah. So now on the so that's the Chinese angle. But on the investment side, I mean, many Chinese experts in the last few days have said that they remain skeptical that Taliban has changed much. They advocate actually that Beijing should be more cautious and. Uh, see like you know how they proceed because some of these investments i mean they will also come with concerns of security i mean though the chinese companies uh, tolerance for security issues would be lower than western companies who would be really reluctant in absence of any security guarantees by taliban but i mean you can just see one in like neighboring pakistan i mean from time to time they do have attacks even though like the pakistani military is informally in control in most of the areas Hmm. Uh, there are like attacks on Chinese uh, engineers and uh, workers, you know, so, I mean, it brings a lot of questions, like, does Taliban guarantee security? I mean, because Taliban might not have full control in a lot of areas. I mean, there could be different warlords who might be battling for supremacy. Or does China put boots on the ground to secure their engineering projects, which will also be another quagmire. I mean, because we just had like this uh, with like graveyard of empires comment, like, you know, that... Mm -hmm. A lot of people have put boots on the ground and nobody has come out really well. So would China, to secure their engineering uh, projects, put boots on the ground or rely on Taliban for security? So, uh, I mean, a lot of open questions, but I think, like, even China is, like, a bit hesitant for the engineering projects to, uh, hmm. for time being, you know. Yeah, and yeah. And moving closer to the East, the South China Sea, I mean, China has been uh, started threatening Taiwan by saying that uh, that oh, that you cannot rely on the uh, U.S. for support, you know. So they have been also meeting, like trying to 
get their shot in saying like, oh, you know what, like Taiwan, uh, you can't rely on and you better become close to us, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that, again, uh, was uh, an off-the-cuff remark, but a very uh, pointed remark at the right time. Uh, China obviously is a master in coming out with such statements at the right time. Uh, mm-hmm. They just utilized the moment but, to threaten Taiwan. Yeah, uh, yeah. but I, I think, see, like, one of the reasons for the withdrawal, I mean, I'm getting a little bit off point here with the China angle, that the US saw that China is their pretty much uh, their main strategic competitor. I mean, in this new Cold War 2.0, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. I mean, their main aim is to put make sure that China doesn't rise and create more trouble for them. Taiwan is a st- of strategic importance to them. They will come to the defense of Taiwan now, how soon Taiwan falls and all that is like an open question. Nobody knows or if China even attempts an invasion of Taiwan. The question is like, I think uh, US saw that this wars in the Middle East, like they were sapping up a lot of his resources and also the money and also the debt is uh, on an ever increasing scale. So they cannot sustain. So they had to pick and choose the battle. So I think they are saying, okay, we will take whatever the bat comes with uh, withdrawing from Afghanistan in terms of maybe there's some uptick in terrorism and stuff, but we want to focus on China. I mean, China did grow under the radar. I mean, this war on terror has gone on for like now, what, 20 years and China did use that time to grow strategically under the radar. Now the US is just shifting its focus. Like, you know, after 9-11, they shifted, there was too much focus on the Cold War with Russia, right? So they shifted their focus to 9-11. So this could be a another moment in history like where maybe US shifts its focus from the war on terror to now China. So I think some of the statements like that, oh, that Taiwan is going to be screwed over completely. I mean, I still have my doubts that I think the focus is more on China now and making sure that China doesn't advance anywhere else in the region. So some of those uh, commentary, I don't completely agree that this is like trouble time. Like people using that, okay, using the Afghanistan example to say, oh, this means that US cannot be relied upon. Obviously, I mean, US could tomorrow say, okay, China is now my friend and like, you know, completely abandon some of its allies. But uh, I don't think that happening anytime soon, but uh, it's like kind of overblown. That gives us a perfect segue to look at the uh, US angle. Uh, Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's look at that, uh, Mohan. So uh, we need to understand uh, what made the US get into a war with the Taliban, come over to Afghanistan in first place. So obviously after 9-11, the primary demands uh, by the US government was give give, uh, Bin Laden to us and all the other Al-Qaeda leadership and groups, stop all terror activities emanating out of uh, the Afghan soil, free all jailed US citizens, and also open up your lands for inspection. Uh, to their satisfaction. So I think that was uh, the list of uh, primary demands. Now, uh, obviously, we all know that the the Taliban did not listen to them, and eventually the war happened. Uh, The Al-Qaeda were kind of routed. Uh, They they ran helter-skelter. Taliban themselves ran helter-skelter. So uh, we kind of know all that. Now, uh, amidst all this, there was a huge uh, debate politically, domestically within the U.S., wherein a lot of debate happened on whether uh, there should be a troop drawdown or increase in troops, so on and so forth. And uh, President Joe Biden, uh, even even uh, last week, uh, on the day of on the day when Kabul fell, uh, he he kind of 
explicitly mentioned that he disagreed with the increase in troops in 2012 when he was the deputy for President Obama. So I think that was a telling statement coming from uh, President Joe Biden, telling that he disagreed mm -hmm. with his uh, with his senior <laughs> troops. Uh, yeah, eight to nine years ago. So yeah, again mm -hmm. uh, in that statement, Joe Biden came up with uh, rather uh, disappointing statements or rather uh, troubling statements, telling our job was never nation building. This led to massive uh, disappointment. I mean, uh, questions like, if bringing peace and democracy was never their objective, then why the hell did they conduct elections or even uh, try to impose a president on uh, the, the Afghan on the Afghan people, uh, have uh, so much invested in the Afghan army, the Afghan air force, so on and so forth. So I think the US will continue to face a barrage of uncomfortable questions about the entire charade of conflict ne negotiations and peace building. In fact, uh, just if, if your goal is only about bringing down a dictator or bring, bringing down a fundamentalist government, then that's the same thing that is happening in Libya or Syria or uh, the other parts of the neighborhood. So I think uh, US was much more invested in Afghanistan. There is no denying it. And uh, Joe Biden uh, saying the contrary right now has led to quite a bit of uh, uh, raised eyebrows around the world. Now, uh, the thing, uh, again, Mohal, uh, you and I were talking about this, is that mm -hmm. he mentioned that uh, we only, our intention was only to carry out counter-terrorist operations, CT, and not counter-insurgency, CI, which I kind of get. Uh, after all, uh, they considered, uh, they categorized Al-Qaeda and uh, Taliban as uh, terror organizations, but mm -hmm. uh, not as uh, insurgency groups which is kind of okay, but then uh, the manner in which they they had to shut shop and leave, uh, again, uh, leads to many more questions than answers. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole problem of the war, that they started out with a counter-terrorism objective, but once they caught, caught in counter-intelligence, it was a never-ending battle, because unless you attack the... Right. Uh, I mean, attack the safe havens across the border with Pakistan, it's never going to uh, work out well. So... I think like even in some reports I was reading in a, a fantastic book called Directorate Test by Steve Cole. I mean, there were reports that uh, Al-Qaeda was pretty much finished uh, in Afghanistan by I think December of 2002 or late of late 2002. Mm -hmm. So the, the goal was like if they wanted to get out, I mean, it's a quite a bit of messy rollout. I mean, if they, the time was either to get out, okay, maybe in late 2001 or 2002 when the Al-Qaeda was finished, or maybe in 2011, even like a decade early, later and 10 years ago that when when Bin Laden was finally captured and killed, I mean. Right. So, I mean, they just stayed too long. They couldn't get any deal going with uh, Taliban to withdraw. I mean, and they just overstayed their welcome with the local pop population and it just became messy as it is today, you know. Uh, the U.S. administration also uh, kind of took all the trouble to explain that we were in a non-combat role and just uh, helping the Afghan national forces uh, whenever the, there were body bags uh, coming back home. But then again, uh, if if you were only trying to support them, then support them. I mean, uh, the naysayers will always tell if your role was only to support them, then support them till the end and not uh, leave them midway. Again, uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, these, these kind of 
back and forth will continue to happen. But moreover, from a domestic perspective within the US, uh, political mudslinging uh, with both the Democrats and the Republicans has already begun, Mohan. Uh, so both of them continue to blame each other almost on every issue, and now Afghanistan is the new issue for them. Uh, the Democrats continue to blame the Republicans for the bad deal that the Trump administration negotiated. And what they think is that the deal, which was kind of uh, signed in early 2020, also included uh, things like freeing around 5,000 prisoners of Taliban by the Ashrafghani government. Obviously, the Afghan national government was never in favor of this. And mm -hmm. I have also read reports telling that the Ghani government was not even aware of this kind of a uh, deal being made uh, by the U.S. government. Now, again, uh, once that happened and then the U.S. elections happened and now that we have a new administration, uh, we also see that uh, the Biden administration now claims that it is only keeping up their end of the bargain, uh, trying to adhere to the May 1st. Was it May 1st, uh, Mohan? May 1st, 2020? Yeah, yeah, the May 1st withdrawal data that could be resumption of attacks by Taliban, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, you have the uh, Democrats uh, claiming that, see, we are only keeping up the, our end of the bargain that you signed for. So, uh, that way, uh, that way again, uh, this is a never-ending uh, mudslinging between the uh, two parties out there in the U.S. Again, the critics of the deal have alleged that it was also badly written, including vague promises of the U.S. and its allies not being attacked by any organization on Afghan soil. So if you want to see the outcome of the deal, the outcome of the deal actually ha uh, can be verified only much, much later when uh, there is no attack on US or any NATO allies uh, uh, emanating out of the Afghan soil. So I think this way uh, it ended up becoming a sham deal uh, for the US and for the Afghan national government. Moreover, mm -hmm. I also read uh, somewhere in some of the articles that uh, while the Afghans, while the Taliban uh, folks are now behaving, the main motto for the Taliban uh, administration is now to ensure that the foreigners all leave and uh, ensure that there is no bloodshed or any violence on the streets of Kabul. And in, in return, the Taliban will get global recognition, not only from uh, the US and NATO, but also from the United Nations themselves. So I think that mm -hmm. is the uh, the other end of the deal or the other end of the bargain that, uh, Ta uh, that Taliban is now uh, eagerly waiting for. So I think that way the US angle is kind of extremely complex, also playing out uh, politically within the US. Um, everybody knows that the US midterm polls are uh, a year away, quite a bit of uh, churn can happen between now and then, but uh, this is, uh, this is quite a back foot for the, uh, President Joe Biden to find himself in uh, uh, um, getting into 2022. Mohan? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have anything uh, yeah. to add about the U.S. perspective? No, I think you covered it well there. So. Okay. So, uh, again, we also need to look at uh, global security, which is uh, an, an interesting perspective, uh, quite, a, quite an important one. Now, uh, everybody will now question uh, the hasty retreat of the US. Um, not only hasty, but also a very symbolic uh, retreat wherein they, uh, they fled out of the Bagram Airbase 
uh, in the middle of the night, then within Kabul, they did not even uh, uh, defend the Kabul airport properly, although now they seem to be uh, barricading it, and now it's the other extreme. They're not even letting uh, the Afghan nationals, nationals get to the airport. So uh, the entire uh, intelligentsia uh, is made to uh, uh, face tough questions, and uh, questions, are, questions being asked are like, how the hell did your intelligence not correctly predict that the Afghan forces would capitulate within a fortnight? And why were you always so confident or why were you always claiming that the Afghan national forces can hold up, uh, if not for two years, if not for one year, at least for about six months? So uh, question like, uh, why, uh, question like, oh, is, it, is it true that you only pick uh, intelligence reports that are favorable to your line of thinking and ignore the other kind of intelligence reports that are provided to you. These are the new kind of questions that are being asked to the US administration. In addition, uh, again, questions like, did all your presidents take wrong decisions to stay back in Afghanistan, even after your primary objective was achieved? So again, uh, for Barack Obama or Donald Trump or even Joe Biden, uh, that is uh, a question that uh, they'll, ha they'll uh, continue to face. Again, from uh, moving on from the US, for Russia and China, they would now want to uh, make the most uh, of this opportune moment and um, uh, come, out, come out and make their moves in the region. After all, Russia uh, might now think that now that the US is not there in, uh, in Central Asia and Middle East, slowly uh, moving back, uh, Russia might think that this might be the right time to attack Eastern Ukraine, uh, the uh, Donetsk region, to ensure that its hold on Crimea, which is actually struggling for drinking water, um, I mean, that, that hold uh, is strengthened. So I think that way you might see Russia making a, a move here, a move there, and testing if, checking if the US is really worried or really concerned or uh, does it even come back and uh, try to attack uh, Russia back? So I think that's the kind of uh, moves that Russia might make. On the contrary, again, uh, Mohal, you brought this out wonderfully well. Uh, China might now think that now that the US is back in, in uh, its own backyard and not uh, poking its nose in Middle East or any of the other Asian regions, China might now start calculating and making moves uh, to start its reunification plans of Taiwan with the mainland. So I think that way each major player, uh, each major uh, superpower might uh, look at this as an opportune moment. After all, we all know that the US is agreement bound to come to the defense of South Korea, Japan, or Taiwan. But then if uh, you, uh, even if you stand up for these countries, even if you come and try to defend, uh, how effective will you be in thwarting the Chinese offensive? Again, uh, how long will you stay put? How long will you stay invested in this region? So I think these are the questions that uh, the US will uh, uh, need to answer. Um, yeah, so I think that way, uh, also that apart, uh, uh, there are these traditional allies like the NATO, uh, Australia, and possibly even India, uh, who will who will now uh, have questions on uh, the real U.S. commitment for global security in this region? 
So God, it helps. Uh, you might find Australia and India asking tough questions to the U.S., telling, uh, I mean, if you're not willing to stand up, then what is the whole point of having a quad? After all, we all know that it's not a military alliance, but uh, at the end of the day, if you're not standing up uh, for what you believed in, then um, it, it might all mean, uh, it might all come down to nothing. So I think that way, uh, we are at the cusp of a new new beginning, or uh, just like how you pointed out, Cold War 2.0, although that might uh, be a too far-fledged uh, term right now. But at least uh, I firmly believe that we are in the, at the cusp of a uh, new beginning. Um, mm -hmm. Well, anything else to add in terms of uh, global? No, I think, global? No, I, think uh, I mean, we did talk about it a lot. So now let's talk to about the the Indian angle, I think, which many listeners would be interested in, like, how does this all affect India mm -hmm. from a domestic perspective? So, Kishore, you want to start? Yeah, luckily, luckily within uh, India, I think uh, we have bipartisan support in terms of uh, talking only to elected governments. And this has been the stated Indian uh, policy for a long, long time since uh, independence. And that is why any uh, Security Council resolution on... Uh, Syria, Libya, on Iran, or uh, any such country, always always uh, has India voting against the uh, Security Council resolution. So I think that way, <coughs> India might want to adapt, adopt a wait and watch policy. And uh, I, I, I somehow feel that India will want the Taliban to make its first move. After all, uh, 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 India would want clarity on uh, whether Taliban would actually, <coughs> <coughs> I'm sorry, uh, whether Taliban would want to tie up with uh, Pakistan-based uh, terror groups like uh, uh, TTP, which you already mentioned, and also uh, Jaish or Laskar under the watchful eyes of the ISI. Although it is true that Taliban has never openly stated any desire to get involved in the JNK issue, uh, at most, they may have an ideological sympathy for their fellow brethren in Kashmir. But then, again, uh, we need to understand that uh, uh, India does not view Taliban uh, sympathetically. And also, uh, India need to realize that Taliban, whether you like it or not, Taliban are the new masters or the new rulers of Afghanistan. Uh, again, uh, one thing that uh, kind of uh, stood out was one... Uh, article that I read where I saw that the external affairs minister, the then external affairs minister, Jaswan Singh, had called the term moderate Taliban as an oxymoron. So I think that way uh, the government or the establishment understands that Taliban can never be trusted to be moderate. Uh, so yeah, that way we need to see how things pan out. But then I will not be surprised, uh, on the contrary, to see if there is a policy level change for India to start talks with the Taliban, but keep it under wraps for a while uh, to begin with, and see if uh, there is some amount of convergence happening between the Indian establishment and Taliban. And if there are any such uh, convergence, any such uh, common uh, ground to cover, then probably India might openly admit that they I mean, are talking with Taliban. There were some reports that we did open some back channel conversations with Taliban in the last 12 months, correct? In the, in the last, last few months. months. Correct, correct. Yeah. And this was, yeah. uh, this was even while we continued uh, talking with the Afghan national government. But then mm -hmm. again, uh, this is contrary to the stated uh, policy of the establishment. So I doubt if 
the government will come out openly and tell that we uh, we are now talking with the Taliban and not with the mm-hmm. democratically mm-hmm. elected government. So I yeah, yeah that's the kind of uh, limbo that India finds itself in. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, the other thing uh, we need to uh, keep in mind is Taliban can make assurances, but will they be able to enforce it on their fighters? For example, we all know that uh, majority of their uh, fighter force are uh, Mujahideen in nature, kind of freelance fighters. So they go from one battleground to another battleground to, in the other part of the world. So what happens if what happens if uh, these uh, fighters who were fighting for the Taliban until now, they move on and uh, uh, try to cross over uh, across the LOC into, uh, into Jammu and Kashmir and start uh, fomenting trouble out here. So I think that, uh, that, that was something that we saw in uh, 1990 after the collapse of the Russian, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So India will be wary of that, although now we have a far better guarded LOC and even the LOC uh, is now quiet, the ceasefire is in effect. So India is in a much better position now, but you cannot totally rule out the fighters acting rogue and uh, uh, starting a new front all by themselves. Yeah, I mean, uh, for Taliban, I think there would be very little appetite to start a conflict with India, which with which they don't even share a land border. I mean, technically, we do have a land border of 100 kilometers, but it's in POK. Mm. So the question is, I mean, if I remember correctly, even 30 years ago, they didn't like uh, declare war with India or like were openly hostile they to India. Not. I think they they like were least bothered about the internal affairs inside India. I mean, they might have some sympathy for their brethren in like Jammu and Kashmir, for example. But there was no open hostility uh, even back then. So I would think that that would continue uh, even then. Um, but the question is, as you rightly said, is like most of them would not be inclined to come to Jammu and Kashmir and create like more terrorism. But what about those free, I mean, I call them, call them like freelance fighters. I mean, they might lose interest in Afghanistan and now might be looking for the next uh, fertile ground to continue their jihad, like it could be in Central Asia, it could be in Europe, it could be uh, against US, it could even be in Jammu and Kashmir. So Taliban might explicitly say, okay, we don't want a war with India, but if they can't control the fighters or if maybe the ISI is controlling some of the fighters, they are definitely bound to be have some coming into POK. But the situation with like, it was this won't be the same as 30 years ago. See, 30 years ago, we had... Uh, we had like army troops in Jammu and Kashmir due to the uncertain, unsettled borders, but we didn't have that many resources to fight the the militants in Kashmir. Like now, we if you keep in mind, like we have like five dozen battalions of Rashtriya rifles, some CRPF, and uh, to fight the terrorism, we have fenced the entire LOC and the international border. Obviously, still infiltration does take place in certain areas, but we also have ground-based sensors uh, put in place in many areas. Uh, we have like developed our uh, counterinsurgency tactics, which have come a long, long way since the early days of Jammu and Kashmir, when, when a lot of lives were lost. So the the system has been set up much better to detect and uh, uh, eliminate many of these terrorist threats. Obviously, there will there could be an uptick. Maybe let's say let's next summer or maybe the year after that when more of these militants will try to push into, but I'm pretty sure the security establishment, including the government <clears throat> and the security forces would have game plan for it and, you know, accounted for it. Obviously there will be some flare ups. I mean, 
in theory i mean nobody can rule out another pulwama type of attack i mean which mm-hmm. or or maybe even a, a a smaller terrorist attack so we'll have to watch our guard but i don't think we'll have a repeat of the same situation that we had in the 90s you know so things will be different this time around is like a, my brief point here you know okay uh, so i think uh, if we don't have anything else probably we can wind up mohan yeah okay uh, so folks uh, before we wind up uh, with this episode let's switch our focus to recommendations uh, mohan you want to talk about your recommendation for the week yeah so i was reading this fantastic book uh, about the whole afghan war from let's say the 2000 from 911 to up till 2014 when the uh, the nato forces uh, completed their mission in afghanistan it's called directorate s and written by an american journalist steve cole and it describes the interplay between the afghanistan government the Pakistan government and the US government how they're trying to negotiate with both and some interactions with Taliban and how they are trying to just get the a hold on the Afghanistan which could never because I mean they could never attack the main source I mean even there's a schizophrenia between the between the US administration well some of them want to go hard at the Pakistan while well, others say no 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 they also have their internal troubles so we can't push them because and they have like nuclear weapons so they can't be falling into the wrong hands So it's like a fantastic account of the 2001 to almost like 2014 time frame on uh, how uh, the whole war and uh, went in that case it's like a, a excellent book i would recommend Kishore like what's your recommendation for this week okay uh, for me the focus was on uh, how swift the fall was and how uh, taliban how well behaved the taliban were Uh, during the entire process in fact uh, they mastered the uh, the uh, they mastered media in such a way that uh, every time one provincial capital fell uh, it only hastened the uh, the progress towards kabul and uh, every time every day uh, people were thinking oh okay let's uh, you know what uh, kabul uh, we thought kabul will not fall for one year let's cut it down to 9 months and then the very next day when one more pro- provincial capital fell people would now uh, be at awe with the progress made by taliban within one day and then suddenly they would tell hey you know what uh, i think uh, it's it's not a matter of 9 months kabul will now fall within 6 months and suddenly we saw that uh, it was all over within uh, less than a fortnight so i think it was more of a, a media fight a, a perspective a narrative that was being built being built all along Uh, in social media and digital media and also in uh, different world capitals as much as uh, on the ground so i think that way uh, taliban had now become media savvy their spokespersons were all extremely uh, well behaved and trying to uh, put their uh, best feet forward so i think that was uh, the perspective that i was looking at and i came up with uh, one such article written by and a madhya pradesh cadre the ips officer called uh, sajid farid shapu uh, who had written an article in indian express titled taliban has learned sound bite diplomacy uh, it kind of summed it up everything summed it up completely for me wherein uh, they the media savvy spokespersons were sending deceptive signals that would appear socially and politically acceptable whereas the organization continued to Uh, pursue their military and ideological ob- objective on the ground 
And I think that was a uh, fascinating article for me, and I would recommend it to my to the listeners. Okay, so uh, that brings us to the end of this particular uh, topics, this particular discussion. Uh, to continue hearing about such interesting topics, you can subscribe to our channel India Rising wherever you are listening to us. If you are listening to us on YouTube, please do press the bell icon to get notifications about new episodes. If you have not left us a review, we urge you to do so as it helps other listeners like you in finding us. We would also like to hear from you if you have any suggestions on any topics that you would like to, like us to cover. Do remember that these topics should be directly related to Indian foreign policy. Until the next time, this is Mohal and Kishore signing off. Music